0: forgot this morning. I meant to put this on this morning. I was a little distracted this morning. I want to just shout out uh, Josh and Warren. Not because they asked you like me, but yesterday I was here leading a core group around 3.30. My sons, two of my kids called me in said so a snake was, and I said, what? I didn't know what they were talking about. You know, sometimes your kids will just talk, you'd be like, what you talking about? Is that a Fortnite?" or are you talking about? They was like, no, my son sent me a video and a picture of a snake that is probably the biggest snake I've ever seen outside of like the zoo, in front of my house, and then eventually crawled into my house. And so, I could no longer lead the core group. So I left and we tried to call animal control and some people, they weren't helpful. Yeah, they only come if the animal was like, I think they just was scared to be honest But that's. So you know, being in this Supernatural Storyline series, my thoughts were going to like, oh, the enemy is sending me a message. You know, I ain't one of them people that think whatever the devil is, but, I, you know, a, a snake, black, big, goes into my house. So I'm wearing a big black shirt today, just an ode to the. So I left and went home, and it was a guy that came. Josh was able to track down the guy that came, and he just basically, I asked him, how much does he charge? And I said, listen. Um, I'm not gonna pay any for advice that I could just get from YouTube. So if you if you leave with this snake, you'll leave with some cake, right? So I was I wasn't going to pay money for you to tell me, well, hey, I got that off of YouTube minute 636 right here. I don't need that. So he was like, no, I'm gonna take a look. So he came and just basically say, Y'all got one or two options. You can either just let it die or knock down this wall that they think that it's in. So he left, and so me, Warren, and Josh, and my sons were out front talking and trying to think through what should we do. And Warren had some snake away that he was like, we're going to put this around the house. As we're talking, Josh's back is to the front of my house. My son is talking to him. I'm trying to work on the message and still be a part of the conversation. So like, yeah, so David, yeah, I'm just going back and forth. Another snake comes around the side of the house, a long black snake. My oldest son said, there's another snake. And I was like, man, they probably called that snake because it came right, you know, like the, you know, I, we just seen the spider verse and they be doing, you know, so, so the other snake comes. At this point, Josh is trying to grab it with the little thing that you usually do, but the snake is, is, is bobbing and weaving. And when he finally grabbed it and pulled it, it looked small and he dropped it in the grass because you don't just handle snakes normally. And it went back in the bushes on on the side of the house. So he was trying to get it. I'm watching him and working on the sermon. (laughs) I'm like, hey, did you catch it yet? And so David was. So Warren pulls up and he jumps out the car. He's got all the stuff that he needs. I give him a small shovel, and so Josh heroically kills this snake. But when we looked at it, it was big, but it was not the one that went into the house. So we think that that might have been the mother, and the other one was the dad, and the dad probably knows the mom, I'm not able to reach her, however they talk, so I sat up most of the night with a shovel on the couch in the basement because if that thing came out, it was, we was going up, we was going in. I didn't run in the streets, I ain't running for no snake. And if it bit me, it bit me. But I'm tired, to say the least. Thank you, Josh and Warren, they killed one, but the other one is still in the house. Well, we don't know that. It went into the garage, but we don't know if it's just sitting there chilling. Oh, I like this place. No, I think that, I, I don't know where it is. And I'm not, unless I see it, I'm not taking nobody's word that it's just sitting right here. So I sat up with a nice rusty shovel the one that Josh killed the other snake with, hoping that that snake would smell its, and come out, so I could, so today we're going to talk about David and Goliath, this is an appropriate narrative, so you can pray for your pastor, there's a snake somewhere, and it may, unless, it, you know, they can lie dormant, you just be chilling, and all of a sudden, you know, just like, and that's not like, oh, it's just a bee. That's different. You know, you'd be like, man, get away from me. It's a bee. This, is a, this snake is big. If I showed you in the picture, y'all would probably start praying for me now. So having said all that, today is the last of the Old Testament stories. I, I in this supernatural storyline, I'm not playing. When I saw that snake, I was like, all right. Oh, okay. I wasn't afraid. I was just mad. Like, oh, man. To me, I was like, "All right, you sending a message. Message received." But I'm not. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving my house. I'm not scared. But I'm gonna sit up with this shovel. And so, if this if this sermon is underwhelming today, you know why. (laughs) But today is the last of the Old Testament stories in this series. From here on out, we'll be in the New Testament in this supernatural storyline series. And our first scene today, we're gonna look at two scenes. Our first scene is David and Goliath. The second scene is David and Bathsheba. So the question is, how do both of these stories fit into the supernatural storyline of the Bible? To do this, to answer these questions, we're going to first look at the natural storyline of both of these stories. I hear you. And then we'll actually we all heard you. And then we'll look at the supernatural implications of each story. Now, to understand what's happening here, we must remember something that we've talked about at different times throughout this series of the supernatural storyline of the Bible. We've talked about this concept called progressive revelation. That is one of the ways that the Bible actually, if you want to understand how the Bible unfolds, these two words are essentially how the Bible unfolds through progressive revelation. God. Does things, reveals things, and then they progressively grow into a fuller understanding of what this scene means. So, for instance, what we'll look at today, Genesis 3.15, when when God said to Satan, this woman will give birth to a seed and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. From that point on, the question of the Bible is, who is that seed? Who is the he? And over the course of 50, 30, 40 something books until you get or 39 until you get to the New Testament, that seed progressively is revealed to be Jesus Christ. So remember progressive revelation as you're reading your Bible. Think, don't look at it as isolated moments in the ancient Near East. See it as a progressive Revelation of a greater story that largely is connected to what happened in Genesis three. We'll come back to that in just a second. Having said that, let's begin. First, Samuel 17. We're going to read the whole story of David and Goliath, because even though it's a popular story, I'm not assuming that everyone is aware of all of the details. So I'm going to read this fast because it's a lot of verses, not micro machines fast, but just let's begin. Beginning of verse one. 2 Samuel 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle when they were gathered at Sako, which belongs to Judah and encamped between Sako and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up the line, the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze Slung between his shoulders, the shaft of the spear was like the weaver's beam and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. So keep in mind that this is the scene. People always think it's David and Goliath, but it's actually Goliath has a shield bearer, someone in front of him. So it's actually two verses one. Right. He has someone who has a shield, which we'll come back to later. And then he says this in verse eight. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you should be all servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of these Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David, the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went in the battle were Eliab the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep of Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So 40 days he's coming out saying, Who's gonna fight me? Y'all are afraid. Bring me one. And if I win, we take you into captivity. If you win, you take us. But he was essentially saying, Y'all ain't winning though. So here's what happens. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this of this parched grain and ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their, th- of, of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they had, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the encampment as host was going out to, ba- to the Babylon shouting the war cry and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army and David left the things in charge of the keeper and the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. (laughs) All the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid very much afraid and the men of Israel said have you seen this man who has come up surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel but that still wasn't enough they were greatly afraid verse 26 and David said to the men who stood by him what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So this is just sibling, bro. You know how your little brother just gets on your nerves. Like, man, why are you? so I'm trying to talk to my friends. Man, don't play with my friends. man. He's my friend, man. Play with your own friends, man. Why are you here? And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from, from, <laughs> from him toward another. And he spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you were not able to go against the Philistine to fight him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. I think David was lying a little bit. <laughs> you know, don't get me. So a lion comes and I just grab him by the beard. Ha! Ah! It's like, nah, fam, you ain't grabbing no lion by the beard. Only Samson did that, mate. But anyway, it's included in the story. And verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed them with a coat of mail. And David stopped and his, David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Did you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give you a flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into the forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. That is an important sentence. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and, and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines, this is important, he didn't kill him with the slingshot, with the stone. He knocked him down. He gave him a serious headache. And then he killed him and cut his head off with, 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 with Samson's own sword. Goliath, I'm sorry, Goliath. You know what it is. I'm t- I told you I'm tired, man. Go ahead, man. Y'all got it, man. Go ahead, man. And the men of Israel of Judah, oh, let me go back. So David, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him in act and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah, listen, after they saw that he, they started running. Ah! Now they bowl, Right now we're ready to fight. You know, it's like when you was young and the bully kept taking your money, then you walk around the corner and you see him getting beat up. Now you want your money back. You know what I'm saying? Now you, for those of y'all that went through that. All right. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. And pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shalram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So he took off Goliath's armor and put it in his own tent as like a, I did this, I'm him. That was what he was saying. As soon as Saul saw David, Go out against the Philistine. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. (laughs) And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Let's look at this from the natural storyline. This is actually, we've, we've spent the last couple messages. So we did, after the Tower of Babel, we did five themes that come out of Babel. And then we did two messages after that that accentuate those themes. So here were the five themes. The creation of language and culture, the creation of religions and why they exist, a theology of the land that we are holy ground, God against the gods, sun, moon, and stars, and a theology of people that Gentiles are also Israel. All right? And then the last two weeks, we doubled down on two of those themes: the people, which looked at the life of Abraham, and then God against the gods last week, the plague, the plagues of Egypt. Today, we double down on the land. We double down on the land. This is what I mean. In the natural storyline for the Israelites, we already seen this, but the battle with the Philistines included the taking of the land. So these wars were not just adversarial, they were also territorial. Now, we know that Israel was commanded to take possession of the land, but taking possession of the land was not exclusive to the nation of Israel. Everyone did this. In fact, listen to this in 2 Chronicles 28, 17 and 18. Here's what it says. It says, beginning in verse 17, for the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made raid on the cities and Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ijelon, Gedaroth, Sako, and its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. So you see, when they went to war, it wasn't just taking people. We're taking your land and we're moving in. So when they threatened to fight with the Israelites and Saul, it wasn't just we're taking you, we're taking your land. These wars were as much territorial as they were adversarial. There's a couple of observations just to make from the text. It's clear that Saul and Israel were afraid of Goliath. They were afraid, terrified. They were so afraid that they let a dude who was young, who had no fighting experience, represent them. Think about that for a second. They know, they even said, you can't fight them, you're young, you're a kid. And just because he showed some boldness, some disdain for the, the, the defiance of the God of Israel, he was the only one that showed that, that they were willing to put all their hopes into this kid that they know he can't really beat him. That's how afraid they were. I said this fight was really two-on-one. Two-on-one, which is actually a good strategy because if you're fighting Goliath, this big dude, you got to worry about him and the armor bearer. Now, the armor bearer, the shield bearer, he will try to block what you do, but he can also hit you With that shield, you get stunned and then Goliath can just kill you. Right. So this is a two on one battle. This isn't just David versus Goliath. His shield bearer will block what David does. So David choosing a slingshot and stones was a great chess move because by doing that, he doesn't have to worry about him because he just aims over him. I'm not worried about you. I'm from a distance and I'm going to aim above what you can block. And so he hits him in the head, and Goliath is down. One stone, he's down. Now, Goliath was not the last of the giants, but he was the beginning of David fighting against the giants. First Chronicles 20, 4 through 8, tells us this. After this, there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer, then Sibbecai, the Hushite, struck down sippai who was one of the descendants of the giants and the Philistines were subdued and there was again war with the Philistines and Elhanan, son of Jair struck down Lami the brother of Goliath the Gittite. The shaft whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Same description they said about Goliath's shaft, right? And there was again war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, struck him down. They were descended from the giants of Gath, and they all fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So this was the beginning of David's ministry, his kingship, his military was fighting against the last of the giants. There is a Jewish tradition that says that Uriah, told David how to cut off Goliath's head. Now we don't have this in our Bibles and it doesn't make sense to me, but let me read to you what they say. This is written in a a publication called The Jewish Encyclopedia, a descriptive record of the history, religion, literature and customs of the Jewish people from the earliest times, prepared by more than 400 scholars and specialists. That's the title, (laughs) didn't sell much. Here's what they say. Here's what they say. When, Goli- when David called out Goliath, I shall give your flesh to the birds of heavens. Goliath looked up at the word birds, the movement displacing his headdress, and at that same moment, the stone flung by David struck Goli- the giant's exposed forehead. As Goliath was armed, David was at a loss of how to cut off his head. Uriah offered to help David if the latter would give him a Jewish for, for a wife. And when David consented, Uriah showed him how the ends of the bands that held the armor together were joined across the soles of Goliath's feet. David gave Bathsheba to the Philistine and she became later a source of much trouble to him because because he had so little regard for the dignity of a Jewish. Now I looked this up and tried to find this in other places. and It didn't make sense to me, but I thought, wow, there are people who actually are making this connection and believe this is true. Let's just say that somehow this was true in some way. Well, that could explain why Uriah is one of the 30 valiant men in David's army. You can see that in 2 Samuel 23, 39. And it could explain the natural connection between David and Bathsheba because Uriah is one of the valiant men is near where David is. And so David could easily see her because that's the valiant men live near David. I don't see it as a biblical connection, but I thought it was interesting that Jewish scholars, hundreds of them, have taught this and wrote this up as a legitimate, but it, it contradicts what our Bible says, because it's a different narrative to some degree, or at least it, it would change some things, like prime example. So we know the story of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. I'm not going to read, I'm just going to get bullet points, right? So David notices Bathsheba from his rooftop, and... He, he, he's, he's actually, it says this, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing that was very beautiful, right? So it's, it's, the irony is that David saw her taking a bath and her name is Bathsheba. That's ironic. She probably has a sister named Clean and stuff. So anyway, all right. David inquired about Bathsheba and learned she was married to Uriah the Hittite. So he sent for her and obviously we know that he had sex with her. It was sin. And then she got pregnant. She informed David that she was pregnant. And then so David tried to have Uriah, who was fighting in a battle, come back so that he could sleep with his wife so that she would be the pregnancy would be his child. He was an honorable man, would not do it. And so David told his general, Joab, to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle, which on one level makes sense because he's one of David's 30 valiant soldiers, but it was still in, with the intent of having him get killed Uriah obviously was killed, and Joab sends word back to David. But what happens after changes everything. Here's what happened after that, 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it and he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. (laughs) Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So you see, this is the consequences of David's sin were essentially twofold. One, the sword will not depart from your house. Now, that is a, an analogy of essentially saying, because you've done this, I'm going to allow violence to be in your house and it will not stop. And the second consequence was, which was sort of the beginning of this, was the baby that you can see with her in light of this sin is going to die. And that happened. The language of the sword will not depart. God doesn't say stuff and not prove it. So you will see in 2 Samuel 13 2 Samuel 15, 2 Samuel 18, these narratives of David's sons. Like in 2 Samuel 13, 38 and 39, it says, After Absalom, he fled and gone to Geshur. He stayed there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Ammon's death. Amnon was, he raped Tamar, which was Absalom's sister. And so Absalom killed him. Then Absalom is angry with David, and eventually, in 2 Samuel 15, decides, I'm taking the kingdom from you. So Absalom raises up and declares himself the king of Israel, while his dad David's the king. He wins people over, and now there's this split in the kingdom. I mean, you see this play out. It's just a sad scene of God saying, the sword will not depart from your house. When David's dying and is old, his son Adonijah says, you know what? I'm the king of Israel now. I'm the king of Israel. Forget about Solomon. And so he goes to war and fights. And David's too old to fight back, and he's just hearing this news. We know in 1 Kings 11, his son Solomon loses the kingdom. And he loses it. You got God Rehoboam coming from the north, Jeroboam coming from the south, and they just attack. So this idea of the sword not departing from his house, it just plays out even after David dies. The prophetic judgment against him is carried on. So those are the natural storylines that anyone can kind of pick up. So what's the supernatural implication of these two stories? What is God doing underneath what we typically see? Well, to answer that first, we have to ask this question and deal with the elephant in the room. Why are there giants after the flood? The flood, which we looked at a couple months ago, is the result of one of the main reasons. Sons of God, which are interpreted as angels, divine beings, taking human form, having sex with women, giving birth to these giants called the Nephilim who are wrecking the world. One of the main reasons why God sends the flood. But after the flood, the Nephilim are still around. You would think that the flood would have destroyed them because they are primarily the offspring that God is trying to wipe out. So why are they there after the flood? Here's what Numbers 13, 32 tells us in proof that they still exist, or at least some remnant of them. It says, So they, verse uh, number 13, 32, and 33. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. Mm -hmm. And so we seem to them. So they're saying, look, we, we went to go look at the promised land that God's given us, and we saw Nephilim there. They were huge, and we're like grasshoppers to them. Deuteronomy 2, verses 11 and 10, tells us this. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, They are also counted as Rephaim, which is another name for people who are descendants of the Nephilim. But the Moabites call them Emim. So everyone has different names for them. Rephaim, Anakites, Emim, Giants. But they exist. Why? Why are they still there? Well, the Bible never answers that question and it doesn't address it. It doesn't address it at all. We have no idea why the giants survived. Now, when we brought this up, when we talked about uh, Noah and, and the curse against Ham, this question was asked. And what I said was, it's likely that the wives of Noah's sons carried within them some of the biology of the Nephilim, just from a natural perspective. It wasn't that angels were still having sex with women and that God... No, it was, it's likely that, because we don't know anything about Noah's wives and his son's wives. It's likely that his son's wives carried within them some bio, biological connection to the Nephilim. We don't know. The Bible doesn't address the question. So the better question is not why have they survived. The better question, since we see that they're there, is in light of God being sovereign and God being intentional, In what way does God benefit from allowing descendants of an evil hybrid of angels and mankind to exist? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how does their existence connect to the supernatural storyline of the Bible? So we we can't answer why, we can speculate, sure. We can't with definitive, but we know that they're there. So the question is like, okay, God, then what are you doing? How does this work that you allow them to be there? How should we process their existence? That's a question that we can speculate on. The next question is, and what role does David play in dealing with these descendants? Because clearly, David's the one who's fighting the giants. What role does he play? Well, to answer that question and to understand all of this, we have to remember who David is. Who David is. In the natural storyline, David is the son of Jesse. He says in 1 Samuel 17, 58, and Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. In the natural storyline, he's the son of Jesse, one of a few other children. In the supernatural storyline, David is the prefiguration of Christ. He's the prefiguration of Christ. Let me tell you what prefigure means. It means to show, suggest, or announce by an antecedent type. Antecedent means before. Image or likeness. Oxford English Dictionary says prefigure means to be an early indication or version of something. So David is a type, a version of Christ. He's a man after God's own heart. And God arranged it so that through David, the Israelites would eventually see the connection to the Messiah. This is why in the New Testament, we hear nothing but Jesus called son of David, son of David. They're waiting for the son of David because they understand that David, through his lineage, comes the Messiah, the Christ. And so David and they thought that Jesus would be like David, a militaristic king, overthrowing the surrounding armies, which would have been the Romans at that time. So David is the prefiguration. He is a type of Christ. The language of prefiguration is common among theologians and scholars. Let me read you a quote from one of them. Jesse brought forth David the king. For God is in the generation of the just, and the generation of the righteous shall be blessed. What can we say concerning David? Whose role in scripture is that of king? Passing over all else, we can at least say this. David prefigured Christ. Christ is interpreted as able of hand or beloved, just as David is interpreted as able of hand or beloved, just as Christ was. He was strong in battle and powerful and beloved by his country and his acts and his mercy and in his greatness. He was prophetically anticipating Christ. So the Jews believe this, that the Messiah will be the son of David. That's why David is regarded so high. In fact, in the New Testament, David is often connected to being Jesus's father, not Abraham. Let's look at Luke 1, verses 26. The scene you know well, beginning in verse 26 to verse 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city called Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. No end. So keep in mind, this is Gabriel, an angel of God, telling Mary that Jesus' father is David. It's David. So they're making the connection. The Jews understand this. They've been waiting for the Christ because they knew that David was the antecedent. He was the prefiguration of Christ. The reason why this happens is through what's called the Davidic covenant that comes out of 2 Samuel 7. It says this, God is speaking to David. From the time that I appointed to you, this is Second Samuel 7, 11 through 13. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we know that wasn't Solomon. Right. So people theologically call this a Davidic covenant. This is God saying that there's going to be an offspring that comes from you that will have a throne forever because of my covenant with you. That's the Christ. David is a type of Christ. In Second Timothy, Paul says this. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He wants to make sure you understand Jesus is the Christ that we've been waiting for because we knew that David, the Christ was coming from him. David is a version, a type of Christ that was coming. So the Israelites loved David. With that in mind, let's revisit David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. So hopefully this will all connect for you. David and Goliath, beginning in verse 48 of 1 Samuel 17. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David... David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way to uh, Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. With what we just said about David being the prefiguration of Jesus, let's now evaluate this through that lens. But first, let's ask, who is Goliath? Goliath represents two things in this this scene. He's the greatest evil that threatened the stability of the Israelites, God's people. Remember, they had been going to war with the Philistines all the time, but they were afraid of him. He's the greatest evil that they've seen, and they're so terrified that they trust a boy to fight for them. They would rather let a boy die than any of them. These grown men. Eliab was mad that his brother was dead, but he didn't say, no, let me go in his place. He's the greatest evil that threatened the stability of the Israelites at that moment. The second thing that he represents, Goliath is a descendant of a satanic divine hybrid of cosmic beings and human beings from Genesis 6. So in the supernatural realm, Goliath is an offspring of Satan. Remember Genesis 3.15, where we talked about the beginning of this message. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now bruise in Genesis 3 has a variety of similar meanings. It can mean to grip hard, to affect, to flick suddenly to imply with a divine angel, to compress with violence, to deliver a sharp blow uh, uh, or a fist, a weapon to guard, keep or to destroy. So God has basically said, I'm going to destroy your authority in the analogy of bruising your head or crushing your head, depending on your translation. Now, if we ought to understand the Bible again, we must remember that Genesis 315 is the supernatural lens. It's the supernatural hermeneutic that we must understand the Bible from, not Ephesians 6. You have to start with Genesis 3.15, because this is when God says, all right, Satan, let's work. We on. This woman's going to give birth to a dude. He's going to shut you down. So the question is, how do these stories connect back to Genesis 3.15? We know that David is a type of Christ. Let's also remember who Jesus is. We know he's the the Messiah, the son of David, but he's also 1 Peter 2, 2, 8. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that it may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Jesus is the stone. He's the stone. David is the prefiguration of Jesus, the stone. David is a part of the promise that God made to Satan to bruise his head. Let's go back to the scene. 1 Samuel 17, 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David used a stone to crush Goliath's head and then cut off his head. Jesus is the stone. David is the prefiguration of Jesus, the stone. So this scene in seed form in the progressive revelation of Genesis 3.15 is a living illustration to Satan that what God said to him about his head being bruised in Genesis 3.15 is going to happen, is coming to life right here. He will be crushed by the seed of Eve the seed is jesus the stone david is a type of jesus that kills goliath with a stone and cuts off his head if that's not bruising your head or crushing your head then what else is so david a type of jesus kills goliath with a stone with a stone this whole scene is progression, progressive revelation of Genesis 3.15. Now that makes a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. But how does David and Bathsheba fit into the supernatural storyline? What does that have to do with this? In light of what we just said about David being the prefiguration of Jesus, let's read examine this scene. Second Samuel 12, verses 9 and 10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have not taken and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Remember when he killed Goliath, he said he had no sword. But three times in this verse, God is accusing him of using a sword. And so he says, because you use the sword, I'm going to not let the sword depart from your house, which is violence will be in your house forever. Now, we saw the immediate fulfillment of this. We looked at this in a little bit in, in David's family through his sons, Absalom. Adonijah, Amnon, Solomon. We saw this play out. Now, to be clear, the sword is not literally a sword, but there's an analogy that violence will never depart from David's house because he took the wife of Uriah violently. Jesus is part of David's family. He's a descendant. We read in Luke 1 that Gabriel told Mary that Jesus will sit in the house of Jacob on his throne forever. So David sin, received judgment from God that violence will not depart from your house. That set in motion a judgment from God that led to violence not departing from your house. And by house, he meant your throne your throne will have violence throughout. It will never end. That sets in motion Jesus, who inherits the throne of David, to experience the ultimate form of violence on the cross. Stay with me. Your Bible is incredible. Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15's promise to Satan that he would get his head crushed by the seed of the woman. So Jesus being the descendant of David, David being the prefiguration of Christ, it was David's sin that set the violence in motion that put Jesus on the cross, which is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that goes back to Genesis 3.15. Keep in mind, All the other things that happened that were like to to Jesus that were similar to David. The rejection of his own people. Israel turned against David. Some went with one son. Some went with another son. Jesus goes to Nazareth. I can't do any miracles here. These people are rejecting me. The betrayal of trusted confidants. I didn't read this, but Joab killed Absalom, even though David said, spare him, spare Absalom, my son. When Joab heard that Absalom was stuck in the oak tree, he was like, man, I'm killing him. Man. He killed him, killed him and then got mad at David for grieving. Oh, Absalom, he was like, man, some old Absalom, this dude killed all these soldiers who are fighting for you and you crying over him. He was betrayed by trusted confidants. All the disciples left Jesus when they took him. John was the only one of the 12 that was there. The internal family struggle. For David, he was the father struggling with his sons. For Jesus, he's the son struggling with the father. Why have you forsaken me? The eternal struggle is all fulfilling the sword, not departing from David's house. So David, the Christ-like figure before Christ, crushes the head of Goliath, the descendant of a satanic hybrid of divine and human origin, which in seed form is a fulfillment of Genesis 315. And then David's sin with Bathsheba sets in motion violence that never ends in his family, that Jesus, a descendant of David, who was also the chief cornerstone, inherits that violence, gets the full brunt of that violence on the cross, which fulfills the prophetic judgment against Satan in Genesis 3.15. And Satan, let's be clear, is the Goliath of all evil. And so he is supernaturally crushed. And I say supernaturally because in the natural world, it doesn't look like Satan's reign is over. But supernaturally, there are people in this room who no longer submit to Satan's reign because you believed. And you have a a, a deposit in the Holy Spirit that supernaturally helps you be like, nah, fam, we ain't doing that. So why did God. How did it benefit God to keep the Nephilim after the flood? You know how? At least one way? He kept them so that they could finally be wiped out by David, who was a type of Christ, until the Christ, that is Jesus, came to completely wipe out all evil. He finished what his father David started. David Stone started the crushing of the head of Satan Jesus, the stone, finished it. So when he said it is finished, it means a lot of things. God is intentional. Your Bible is incredible. If you don't know that now, I don't know what else to say to you. Let's pray. Father, we know that you, you know, we we use phrases, we get this from your word where it says, you work in mysterious ways. We understand that to be true, that your ways are, are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. We get it. But Lord, it's not until you've allowed us to really see what's happening, how you work, that it is utterly incredible. The detail. We knew you were detailed in the very meticulous ways you wanted the temple built. We didn't know you were this detailed in the meticulous ways in which you worked out all of these things, including the sin of David to set in motion violence that never departs from his house that leads to Jesus on the cross, experiencing the ultimate fulfillment of that violence that we see in Revelation five, that looks like a lamb who appears to be slain. So that violence is a part of the identity of Jesus, even in eternity. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us grow in an endless fascination and that we would, where necessary, repent of being bored of your Bible. Repent of being bored of praying. Repent of acting as if we can just lightly interact with you and be okay. Lord, your Bible is serious and you've done serious things. The problem is not your word is confusing or boring. The problem is we're disinterested. So I pray, Father, that from this series and beyond this, Lord, you don't need me and we know that. Your spirit is what helps people process and understand. So thank you for allowing me to speak some things, but your spirit is doing the work in the hearts of people. I can never take credit for that. I refuse to even convince, try to think that I'm responsible. Lord, you are, but I pray that each of us, as we hear these things, and if we're in all of them, may that all, may it prick our hearts in such a way that we are dissatisfied with where we've been, that we want more of your word and more of you. As you've given us a lot of things in this series that started in September, You've shown us a lot of different things. Lord, we're grateful for you, grateful for your word, grateful for the way you work. The enemy is clearly too small. And by your grace. You've made us. A part of those who are too big. So may we remember. The offspring of David, who is the offspring of the seed of the woman who crushed the Goliath of all evil, Satan. And may that encourage us, challenge us, and give us boldness to persevere to the end, to be grown and owned for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.